Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. everybody and welcome to Fruit Loops season three episode 21. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No (laughs) ma'am. There are many well-documented serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. <laughs> Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That's correct. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website, but if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Lemuel Warren Smith, a serial killer and rapist from upstate New York. Mm, cannot wait. But before we get into it, how you doing? Good. I just got back from North Dakota a couple of days ago. I saw my daughter and my son-in-law and my grandson spent Thanksgiving with them. It was really nice. Mm. Um, but getting back was touch and go. I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if I'd be able to fly out because there was a big storm. Yeah. And uh, I was having nightmares about it. <laughs> yeah, I worried was worried about too. trying to get like, back. Yeah, you were messaging me like basically minute by minute, like uh, my flight's still on. We're still a go. <laughs> yeah, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to get back in time to record. That was my mm-hmm. concern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is the only thing that matters, of course. Yes, I of mean. course, of course. Yeah. But yeah. I, I did get back uh, on time. My my flight was only delayed by like an hour and a half. And it turned out the worst of the storm was south of where I was. So, uh, so it was okay. Oh, good. I'm glad you're back in one piece. Me too. One piece. I, I missed my best. <laughs> 
Beth. I always look because I can I can sometimes I'll just sneak around the corner to see if you're like at your desk so I can go talk to you about some bullshit. And uh, it was just there. You just weren't there. (laughs) So glad you're back. You too. Um, So now we are going to dive into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. So good to see you. So what's in the bag, Beth? What did they bring us? I got an email from Dre who said, hey, ladies, I just got hip to your podcast about three weeks ago, and it's the shiznit. (laughs) 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 I've been hooked ever since. Keep up the good work. You two as the host are da bomb. Oh, no, you da bomb. (laughs) Yeah. Hip hop air horns. Thank you, Dre. Thank you, Dre. And I got an email. We got an email from Alicia. Uh, She says, hi, Wendy and Beth. I absolutely love y'all. I'm behind by a year, but from the first episode, I was addicted. I'm currently on season two, episode 12, about the cocaine queen, which is one of our best episodes. Please go back and check it out. Yeah, I love that one. Love this story. Yeah. I fancy myself a serial killer and murder in general novice, but I've learned some new names and stories through your podcast. Can't wait to get caught up. I'm Mexican-American and Black, and my father is an ESL, that's English as a second language Mexican, refused to teach us Spanish, and which, uh, welcome to Culture Corner, you'll find that many immigrant parents um, want their kids to learn American English, uh, and yeah. will well, my my grandfather did this with my my parents, but um, but he often spoke Spanglish, which I consider speaking Spanish and English in the same sentence. When you're covering a Latinx, by the way, that's she says that's a new term that she learned and love from you. You speaking Spanglish reminds me of my late father, Aww. and Beth hands down is the dopest white chick. Aww. Yes, we all know what it is. <laughs> <So nice>. <laughs> and <laughs> I kind of now have formally invited you. To the BBQ, so we get to go to the cookout, Bev. <laughs> All right. She needs to let us know where she lives right so we on. can do a live show yeah. there. Uh, love, <laughs> love y'all. Keep it up. And I'm working on being a monthly patron into my new budget come January 2020. So thank you so Sweet. much, Alicia. Yeah, thank you. Yes, look, prayers for your budget. We won't be mad at you though if 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 you just continue to support us by listening to us and telling yeah. your friends about us and share with your friends. That's yeah. right. So now we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna dive into the story when we come back. So what's up, Fruit Loops Pod Squad? We wanted to turn you on to a new podcast that's been on our radar for a few months now. It's called the Hate Crime Files Podcast. And according to the latest FBI statistics, over 7,000 incidents motivated by bias towards, here goes the list, race, ethnicity, ancestry, religion, sexual orientation, disability, gender, and gender identity were reported in 2018. Who has the energy to hate somebody for all of those things? Yeah. Yeah. And these are hate crimes. And mm-hmm. they've been on the rise for the last three years. The Hate Crime Files is a podcast all about them. It is researched, written, and hosted and produced by activist and writer Terrence Heath. Shout out to you, Terrence. And The Hate Crime Files takes an in-depth dive into hate crimes, past and present, with new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. You can subscribe to Hate Crime Files on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you should. Yes, it's great. Yeah. But bring tissues. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So now we're going to dive into our subject, Beth. Who are we talking about again? We're talking about Lemuel Warren Smith, a serial killer and rapist from upstate New York, who spent his adult life in and out of prison and then committed his final murder that we know of in prison. Yeah. Talk about a swan song. Yeah. Um, So now we are going to dive into Wendy's favorite part of the whole show, the stats. (laughs) Yeah. Lemuel Warren Smith was a black American male. He's dark skinned and large in stature. And I bring that up because um, colorism is real and um, darker skinned um, black males are seen as more menacing than a a, a skinny lighter skin white guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was born in 1941. He is a Leo, by the way. Uh, He had six victims, but they say five because the last victim of the prison guard has some conspiracy theories associated with it, which we'll get into. Um, He was a rapist and a murderer. He was a convicted one and he would beat, shoot and strangle uh, his victims in order to extinguish them. He committed his first major crime in 1958 and then killed again in 76, 77 and 81 in upstate New York. And fun fact, there were several other serial killers active during this time. Mm. Mac Ray Edwards 
Heard of him, Beth? Nope. Richard Kalinsky? Heard of him, Beth? Nope. Peter Manuel? Heard of him, Beth? Nope. Carol Edward Cole? Heard of him, Beth? That one sounds familiar, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Ah, I'd never heard of those Gonna guys. Gonna have to look into them. Yeah. And they're all white dudes, so we won't be talking about them. Oh, anyway, yeah. his, never mind. <laughs> his victims <laughs> his victims were Dorothy Waterstreet, uh, Robert Hederman, who was 48, Margaret Byron, who was 59, Joan Richburg was 24, Marilee Wilson was 30, and Donna Payant, 31. Lem was arrested in 1977, and he is currently still in prison. So next part of our show is where we get into the setting, because context is everything. So hit it, Beth. <laughs> Most of the story takes place in upstate New York. The location of upstate is debatable, but to most people in New York City, anything outside and north of the city is upstate. I did not know that. Yeah. If you say upstate, that's what they usually mean. Oh. So Lemuel Smith was from Amsterdam, New York, just outside of Schenectady, which is in the mid-region of the state. And the name Amsterdam was chosen because most of the settlers at the time settlers, colonizers, I mean, take your pick, pick your poison. Yeah. At the time, we're from the Netherlands. New York City was actually originally called New Amsterdam in the colony of New Netherland, established by the Dutch West India Company in 1624. New Netherland was comprised of European colonists, Native Americans, and Africans imported as slave laborers. The colony had an estimated population of between 7,000 and 8,000 at the time. It was transferred to England in 1674, half of whom were not of Dutch descent, but still lots and lots of white folks. Lots. Um, yeah. So welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. The concept of race is completely made up. That's right. Yeah. There is only one race. That is the human race. But in the early 1600s, the concept of white supremacy was solidified. Here's how the equation goes. White is right at all costs. Brown can stick around and black can get back. Uh, that's when that all first started. So it was incorporated overtly in laws, um, systems, um, anything you can think of sort of all yeah. goes back to this creation of the made up concept the of concept, white supremacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Amsterdam, New York is some 200 miles away from New York City, established almost 200 years later. But still, like we mentioned, lots of white folks, about 75 percent. Mm -hmm. Originally, it was an industrial city on the Erie Canal known for carpet, textile and button manufacturing. The Erie Canal made it easy to move goods to the Great Lakes or to the Hudson River and down to New York City. Boy, oh boy, another Culture Corner. <laughs> Buckle up. Welcome to the second installment of Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. As Beth said, there was, in fact, slavery in the North. Um, and people like to forget that fact. Like the North likes to think, we're so awesome because we didn't have slavery. Well, you did. They did. You just yeah. ended it a little bit earlier. And New York was one of the last Northern states to end slavery in the 1820s and 30s. And on large plantations in the Southern states, 20 or more slaves might have been grouped together. Together, but this was rare in New York. In New York City, with one to three slaves per household, enslaved Africans lived in the attics and cellars of townhouses or in other separate quarters. In rural areas, slaves were often isolated, and there were fewer opportunities to socialize with other blacks, to form families, or to keep in contact with other family members when they were separated. Mm -hmm. Slaves lived in the master's homes or barns, some farms and well wealthy landowners had separate housing for the slaves. And that really sounds like a miserable existence. Existence. Yeah. And actually, yeah. Um, there's a new podcast I listened to. God, I, I don't want to make this episode too long, but I think it's really important because um, we just had Halloween recently. Right. And um, the term, the idea of a zombie mm -hmm. um, came from enslaved people in Haiti. Oh, and the thing is that when you are um, enslaved, brutalized, beaten, um, demoralized, dehumanized, that these people would proceed with doing the work that they had no choice to do. But it's like their souls completely left their bodies and they oh, were zombified, essentially. Yeah. And I, I think zombie, like the word comes from some French word that I can't even think of right now. But some hoity-toity French some word. Some hoity-toity French word. But that's <laughs> what they used to describe slaves who basically had nothing to live for, were soulless, were miserable. Well, that's and that's fucking depressing. 
Yes, very much so. But I still love The Walking Dead. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> although slavery ended, uh, the North still didn't welcome black people with open arms. And the North still relied heavily on the institution of enslavement for their goods like sugar, cotton, tobacco and other goods produced by enslaved black people in the South. By the time Lemuel Smith was born in the 1940s, the city was starting to go into decline. Upstate New York was a stop on the Great Migration. I don't know exactly where Lem's parents were from. I suspect he was a Great Migration baby, but we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. Since Amsterdam was an industrial town, they probably went there for work. Right. And for the first time, listeners, step on again, step on over to Culture Corner with me. Hip hop. Uh, the Great Migration was we've talked about it many times on the on the um, pod before, but it's an important part of American history that never gets told. No, um, talked yep. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from 1910 and 1940, 100s and 1000s of Southern African-Americans moved to the north seeking better employment, housing and education for their children and less racial discrimination. But unfortunately, once they got there, black people. People found hard, dirty industrial employment, poor housing, mediocre schools and racial discrimination. But, you know, at least they weren't being killed or terrorized yeah. as much Yay. as they were in the South. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's a plus. So African of progress. So African-Americans continued to flock to the North's urban centers until the 1960s. Um, so that's it for the setting. Now we're going to dive into the early life. Take it away, Beth. All right. So Lemuel Smith was born on July 23rd, 1941 in Amsterdam, New York, to John and Mildred Smith. His parents were very religious and his father was a minister. Lemuel was the youngest of four children born to the couple. But prior to Lemuel's birth in 1939, their son, John Jr., died of encephalitis. Yeah. But I mean, before he was even born, this apparently had a very... Never um, knew this baby. Yeah. Yeah. Very, um, uh, very impactful um, presence in Lemuel's life. So Lemuel later said that he suffered mental abuse from his religiously overzealous parents, particularly his father, who was a very fire and brimstone kind of guy. At the time, I don't think that was actually unusual. Um, Christianity was shoved down black people's throats by colonizers and enslavers on top of that. In a world where your child could be lynched for looking at a white person the wrong way, you had to teach your children to behave even when they weren't doing anything wrong. And so strict discipline may have just been the only way that these parents knew how to keep their kids safe and alive. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. Mm -hmm. As a child, Smith had several accidents. He once fell out of a tree. He also had a sledding accident and he fell while playing basketball. And all three of those accidents resulted in head injuries. Mm -hmm. Reportedly during his preteen years, he stalked, kissed, touched and manually penetrated girls. The article where I read that didn't say anything other than that, uh, but it was probably without their consent, I'm assuming. He later claimed that his first attempt to murder occurred when he was just 12 years old, when he nearly smothered a nine-year-old girl to death. But this claim was never substantiated. Nobody ever came forward to say, hey, that girl was me or anything Mm. like that. Okay. Lemuel was a star athlete at his high school. I believe he played basketball. But in December of 1957, when Lemuel was only 16 years old, he was indicted for the burglary of a coffee shop and confectionery store in the neighborhood. He was free on bond when on January 1st, 1958, 46-year-old Dorothy Water Street, a mother of five, um, she was actually the mother of one of uh, Lemuel Smith's friends, was robbed, beaten, and stomped to death while walking home from church in the same neighborhood. And police found evidence that pointed towards Lemuel Smith within two days he was brought in for questioning, but they did not have enough evidence to charge him. So that's it for his early life, at least what we know of it. Now we're going to hit the timeline. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) In the summer of 1958, while under investigation by Amsterdam police for the Water Street murder, Smith moved to Schenectady with his sister Edith and then to Baltimore with some other relatives. There he became infatuated with 25-year-old Edna Johnson, who was working at a local dry cleaning store. Mm. On July 30th, 1958, Smith kidnapped Edna and nearly beat her to death with an iron pipe. However, a witness interrupted 
interrupt the, the crime and Smith was arrested. After a trial and conviction, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison for assault on April 12th, 1959. His mother believed that he was innocent and put an ad in the paper for witnesses to come forward, but to no avail. He served his sentence at a Maryland penitentiary. It was during this time that he converted to Catholicism over the opposition of his family, and he was made the chaplain's assistant. Two years after that, he was granted parole based on the chaplain's plea to the parole board. And in May of 1968, after nearly 10 years in custody, Smith was paroled and he moved back to New York. So maybe this is ignorant of me, but... um. I never knew any black Americans who were Catholic. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, my, my mother is, is, was raised Catholic, but she's from Central America. But uh, right. uh, most, of the, most of the black people I knew were Christians. And when I went to New Orleans. Baptist, a lot yes, of them. Yes, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I was like, oh, you guys are, you guys are, you guys, there's black Catholic people? Whoa! It was it was it was a surprise to me. I know it's ignorant, but I'm just I don't know if other people it's have had that It's not something thought. you ever thought about. Yeah. 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 Uh, on May 19th in 1968, he kidnapped and sexually assaulted a woman who managed to escape. Later that same day, he kidnapped and raped and tortured a 46 year old friend of his mother's. When the woman convinced Smith to let her go, he was arrested again. Smith then spent 17 years in prison when he was released on October 5th of 1976. He found a job working in a warehouse in Albany, New York. So most of his time ha- has been in the joint. Like, right. He was out for weeks ooh. and then he went back to prison. Yeah. Oh, OK. OK. On November 24th, 1976, the day before Thanksgiving, Robert Hederman, 48, and Hederman's secretary, Margaret Byron, 59, were found brutally murdered in the back of Hederman's religious store in Albany, near where Smith was employed. Both victims had been stabbed several times in the chest and their throats slit. Human feces was found at the crime scene. Yeah, and uh, I think, was it, is it um, true? It either, it either is true crime all the time or last podcast on the left. One of those podcast true White crime shows with podcast. all dudes. Yeah. yeah, with all dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I they mentioned one of these victims was stabbed in the eye. Um, oh, yikes. And I just like that image was like, whew, that is intense yeah uh, i know you don't like all the bloody bloody gory details so we don't, I know we don't you keep, do we don't keep them all in the in the in the episode but yeah we, we my, kind of compromise <laughs> we kind of compromise you get a little bit of details and i'm like no yeah. no no, no, yeah. no. <laughs> delete 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 <laughs> yeah but if you guys ever want to uh look up the details we have uh you know our footnotes you can always yeah. read the articles that we read yeah and, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> So, oh, okay. So while Albany police were still investigating the double murder on December 23rd, 1976, Joan Richburg, 24 years old, was raped, murdered, stabbed and mutilated in her car at Colony Center Mall in Colony. The pattern of brutality and hair evidence made Smith the prime suspect in that murder, but there was not enough evidence to actually charge him. Barely two weeks later, on January 1st, 1977, a large black man tried to kidnap a 22-year-old woman named Denise out of a gift shop in Albany. When she resisted, he took her 60-year-old grandmother, Beulah Southwell, hostage and threatened mm. to kill her. When some people interrupted, he threw the woman down, knocking her unconscious, and then stopped stomped on her, deliberately stepped on her hand and broke it. Years wow. later, Beulah Southwell saw a picture of Smith in the newspaper and identified him as her attacker. Wow. That is an intense scene. Yeah. You go from an almost kidnapping to a hostage situation to a beat down on the curb. Of a 60-year-old wow. woman. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, on July 22nd, 1977, Marilee Wilson, 30 years old, was found strangled and mutilated near train tracks in downtown Schenectady. The postmortem mutilation was worse than some veteran investigators in the region had ever seen, and it included bite marks on her body. Smith was known to frequent the area, and witnesses recalled Wilson being accosted by a large black man. Smith became the prime suspect in her murder. 
On August 19, 1977, Marianne Maggio, 18, who worked in the same area as Marilee Wilson, was kidnapped, beaten, and raped by Lemuel Smith. He then forced her to drive him towards Albany afterwards. When Marianne did not come home, her parents contacted police and a Beyond the Lookout or Bolo was put out for her car. Police were able to locate and stop the car, and they arrested Smith without incident. That's good. Yeah. Since Smith was the main suspect in Marilee Wilson's murder, her body was exhumed, and the bite marks on her body were compared to a model made from Smith's teeth. They were a match. And in late October 1977, police conducted an experiment involving a police dog, which I don't trust police dogs, but um, <laughs> I do think that it, for the time, uh, matching the bite marks is... Um, I think pretty uh, pretty good way to um, get to the bottom of the case. A good way to investigate. We'll get, in, we'll get into it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Smith was transported to Bleecker Stadium in Albany. He and four other men were randomly placed behind five screens at one end of the stadium. At the other end of the stadium, a police dog was given the scent of the feces-stained clothing from the Hederman store murders 11 months prior. Oh, boy. The dog crossed the entire stadium directly to Lemuel Smith. Out of sight of the dog, the five men were randomly rearranged and the experiment was repeated with the same result. It was successful a third time as well. On September 16, 1977, Smith's court-appointed attorney met with the district attorneys of Schenectady, Albany, and Saratoga counties in an attempt to negotiate a plea bargain concerning crimes Smith had allegedly committed in all three jurisdictions. Smith was willing to plead guilty in exchange for concurrent sentences of 25 years to life on all of the charges. This offer was rejected. At the same meeting, in the interest of solving three homicides in his county, the Albany district attorney apparently agreed to underwrite the cost of continuing psychiatric care, which Smith's attorney had arranged for him. In March of 1978, Smith told his psychiatrist that he was willing to talk to police about the crimes that he had committed. He gave a lengthy statement recounting several murders he had committed, including those in the Hederman Religious Shop and Dorothy Water Street. He also claimed that he was suffering from multiple personality disorder. Okay, this is where I the most interesting part of the story, I thought. Um, the psychiatrist later testified that Smith was suffering from a delusion that his brother, John Jr., the one, you know, who died before he was born, lived inside him and that it was actually John Jr. who drove him to murder. He diagnosed Smith with paranoid schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder and said that Smith had chronic delusions and a distorted sense of reality. When it was determined to go ahead with the initial rape and kidnapping trials, two doctors testified to his delusions, but stopped short of saying he was criminally insane. Smith was found guilty of rape in Saratoga County and on March 1978 was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. And then four months later, Smith was found guilty of kidnapping in another case and he was sentenced to another 25 years to life. Soon after, Lemuel Smith unsuccessfully attempted suicide. In Albany, Smith was indicted for the Hedeman store double murder. He was found guilty on February, oh, I don't know, I don't know the date, but sometime in February, in February 1969 or 1979. <laughs> 79. Yeah, and he was sentenced <laughs> to another 50 years to life. When the bite mark evidence was presented in the Marilee Wilson murder case, Smith was indicted for her murder. He was also indicted for the murder of Joan Richburg after confessing. But since there was already no chance of him ever leaving prison, these indictments were dismissed. He was incarcerated at Green Haven Correctional Facility in Stormville, New York. Donna Payant was employed as a corrections officer at the Greenhaven facility. She was 31 and the mother of three children. She grew up in Saranac, New York, near Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, where her father worked as a corrections officer for 38 years. And Danamora is the uh, prison featured in the show Escape from Danamora. Mm -hmm. It's apparently really isolated and super cold up there, very close to the Canadian border. And her husband, Leo, was also a guard at Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora. And Donna was looking to get transferred up there. Oh, okay. Donna began her career at Greenhaven in 1981. And in May of 1981, about five weeks after starting as a corrections officer, she was working on Smith's block. 
Smith at the time was 39 years old and had spent almost all of his adult life in prison. On the afternoon of May 15, 1981, Donna was scheduled to work the 1 to 9 p.m. shift. After reporting to work, Donna, along with some other corrections officers, headed to their work assignments. As she was walking with the other officers, the telephone in the west side corridor rang and another officer answered it. The caller asked for Donna Payant. Um, I just wanted to mention about the shift thing. So my dad was a corrections officer. And oh, he they, was? Yeah, they, they switch up the guard shifts uh-huh. because they know that the, the inmates are like watching, you know, and like plotting on them. So... Um, so I don't remember. They don't want them to be in the same place all the time. Exactly. So they switch up their shifts and they, they shift up, they switch up like where they work within the prison. So they're not always in the same place at the same time. So, you know, for their safety, I guess. Yeah, probably also. So they don't get buddy, buddy with the inmates. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's also a good point. But, um, Prison is a talk for another day. Uh, Donna Donna took the phone from the other officer and spoke to someone briefly. After hanging up on the phone, Payant said that there was a problem that she had to straighten out and that she would be right back. The other officers thought she seemed upset. She then headed back down the west side corridor. Donna passed both the west side control gate and the control station in the hospital corridor, heading east at about 1 p.m. That direction would lead to the chaplain's office complex on the other side of the hospital corridor. At the time, Lemuel Smith was a clerk to the Catholic chaplain. His duties included cleaning the chaplain's office and emptying the garbage. He also worked in Greenhaven's package room again, where his duties included cleaning and dumping the garbage. Smith was observed by corrections officers in the hospital corridor area near the chaplain's office at about 1 p.m. And around that same time, another inmate saw Smith and Payant enter the chaplain's office complex and walk down an enclosed corridor to the rear room, which was the chaplain's library. The chaplain was away that day. Sometime after 1 p.m., an inmate knocked at the outer door to the chaplain's office complex after hearing loud noises from inside. Smith appeared from the rear office and in a nasty manner told the inmate to go away. That inmate later met a corrections officer in the hospital corridor, and the two of them proceeded back to the chaplain's office to make some phone calls. When they got there, Smith was nowhere to be seen. But the corrections officer and the inmate noticed that the office was in disorder. A 55-gallon waste drum that was usually in the outer alcove had been moved to the chaplain's library, was about two-thirds full, and had boards placed over the top. Soon afterward, Smith returned to the chaplain's office with a plastic object under his arm and went into the rear room. He told the corrections officer he had to empty some garbage and left with the 55-gallon drum. Wouldn't that be really heavy? I think they had a cart that oh, they, they moved it on. Okay. Yeah. Smith was observed by officers in the hospital corridor and the gate corridor dumpster area transporting large waste drums on a cart. The officers did not check the drums. The corrections officer and the other inmate left the chaplain's office about 2.45 p.m., while Smith, who had returned to the office, remained inside the rear room. Shortly afterwards, Smith went to the package room to empty the garbage, although Smith usually emptied the garbage there in the morning. This also was the first time the package room officer could remember that Smith brought the chaplain's office waste cart with him. The last sighting of Smith that afternoon was around 3.25 p.m. when he asked a corrections captain to return a cart to the administration corridor or to accompany him while he did so. Although Donna never showed up for her assignments on May 15th, her absence was not reported until approximately 6 p.m. when she missed roll call. Telephone calls and searches by corrections officers failed to locate her. At about 8 p.m., the inmates were locked into their cells. So that's it for the timeline. Now we're going to get into the investigation. Hundreds of corrections officers combed the entire prison grounds throughout the night and into the following morning. The state police were contacted and police dogs traced Donna's scent to the prison's trash collection area. The institution's dumpsters were searched. Two corrections officers actually climbed inside some of the dumpsters dumpsters to look for her. In the early morning on May 16th, the institution's garbage truck was brought in and dumpsters were emptied into the truck while corrections officers shone their flashlights onto the garbage. The search failed to turn up Payant's body. Later that morning, Greenhaven's civilian garbage truck operator, accompanied by two corrections officers, took the truckload of garbage to a dump in Amenia, where the garbage was 
spread out and examined with the aid of a bulldozer. It was there that Donna Pant's body was found. She had been encased in three plastic bags, her hand tied behind her back, her clothes in disarray, and a cord was tied around her neck. The plastic bags had been taped together by masking tape. Masking tape was kept in the chaplain's office. Plastic bags and cord was available in the package room, and the cords in the Venetian blinds of the chaplain's office had recently been replaced. Sounds like Clue, the game. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In the chaplain's office with a plastic bag and a Venetian blind. Right, right. Oh, it's terrible. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It, we're, look, this is this is Fruit Loops. Okay. Fruit Loops. <laughs> if you don't like it, then you don't have to listen. Okay. I was listening to my favorite murder this week. And yeah, I know. Uh, but uh, and they were talking about because they get criticized a lot as females um, talking about murder and crime and cracking jokes. And um, what they said I thought was really appropriate. Um, because their explanation is, I, I, I think, not very different from ours, is that um, we've had to deal with really shitty things in our lives and current currently to this day. And we're really fascinated by murder. But just because we're joking, they're joking around about crimes or uh, inserting jokes within the story doesn't mean that they um, don't have any respect for the victims or um, don't care about these people's lives at all. It's just it's just how yeah. they tell their tell these stories um, and they have fun doing it. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface, to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way yeah. of dealing with, with awful things. Yeah. And a coping I also mechanism. have to point out too, that the, the, the dude true crime podcast that, uh, insert comedy all, crack jokes all the time. I don't think they that they're as criticized the yeah. as the female true crime podcast. So I just get, wanted to point that yeah. out. Sorry, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Pants identification card and badge case were found in a utility closet in the prison on May 18th but insufficient fingerprints for any identification were found. Hairs were found near the door to the library, the chaplain's office, and also in the closet. Examination showed that the hairs that they found uh, were microscopically similar to samples of Payant's hair, but it was not possible to make a positive identification. Hairs were also found on Payant's body, and those hairs were found to be microscopically similar to Smith's hair, although, again, a positive identification could not be made. The first autopsy on Pant's body was performed on the evening of May 16th, revealing multiple injuries both before and after death. The pre-mortem injuries included injuries to the face and head, 
injuries caused by the cord around her neck and hands, and injuries on her chest, including curvy linear mark on the upper right portion and the amputation of both nipples. Wow. A second autopsy was performed on May 19th, 1981 by the medical examiner, who just happened to be Michael Baden, the famous medical examiner of the HBO TV show Autopsy. Ooh, look at that. Yeah. He concluded that Payant had died of strangulation. Baden was of the opinion that the amputation of the nipples was caused by a human bite. And that the curvilinear mark on the upper right chest could have been a human bite mark. Oh, my God. Well, okay. Mm. I've breastfed two children, both who bit the shit out of me as they approached Mm. year one. And it is so painful. Painful. I can't imagine your nipples being bitten completely off. That's Awful. Yeah, I don't want to think about it. Okay, yeah. well, let's move on then. Four years prior, uh, <laughs> Stop about it. four years prior, <laughs> um, Baden had been the Emmy. By the way, that's my dream job uh, to be a medical examiner. But um, who did the autopsy of Marilee Wilson? She also had human bite marks, and she had been sexually brutalized in the same way as Donna Payant. Baden recognized the pattern of violence in the bite marks, and he called the DA to ask if Lemuel Smith was a prisoner at the Greenhaven prison, and he was. Baden believed that it was unlikely that there was another person in the state of New York who killed in the same way that both of these women were murdered, and passed that information on to the DA. And uh, I think it's really remarkable that he he remembered yeah, the other he, murder yeah. and connected them, and yeah, this guy was in prison with her. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really remarkable. Agreed. Anyway, uh, the bite marks were compared and they matched. They also matched a mold that was made of Lemuel Smith's teeth. And this was the first time in the United States that a female corrections officer had ever been killed inside of a prison. More than 5,000 officers attended Payton's funeral. Um, so now we are going to get into the trial and... Uh, Hit it, Beth. The prosecution produced four forensic odontologists who testified that the mark was a bite mark made by Smith. They compared a stone model of Smith's teeth as well as impressions made in dental, I think it's like a clay, something like that. Okay. Um, from that model with the life-size photograph of Payant's chest identifying by visual observation and individual characteristics of Smith's teeth, such as the shape of the arch and tooth shape and spacing and rotation. They then made photo to photo comparisons of the Payant mark and a bite mark known to have been made by Smith on Marilee Wilson. Three forensic odontologists testified for the defense. They were of the opinion that the mark was not Smith's bike mark and was actually not a bike mark at all. Their opinions were based on a different technique involving the production of transparencies made by a model of Smith's teeth, which were then laid over the photograph on the mark on Payant's body. And here we should mention uh, that bite mark evidence has come into question in the last few years. I don't think it's completely useless, but the method the defense witnesses used seems less reliable to me. Uh, I've seen that before on TV shows where they they take a transparency and put it over a mark. Mm -hmm. And it, it just doesn't seem like a really reliable way of doing it. Whereas the other way that the, uh, prosecution witnesses did it where they were comparing lots of different things to point to the bite mark. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, nothing's as dope as DNA, but yes. uh, Yeah. I think (laughs) this was the, the, (laughs) yeah, I think early eighties, they did not have the DNA. Right. And then Jurassic Park came out. Uh, Robert (laughs) Robert DeBona, a fellow inmate, testified that on May 16th, 1982, approximately one year after Payant's death and after Smith had been charged with her murder, he and Smith were speaking when Smith, who seemed to be in a very emotional state, blurted out that he was being driven and he couldn't help himself. He had to do what he had to do and that he shouldn't ever have made the phone call that he deserved to die. Who deserved? Uh, that Lemuel Smith deserved to die. Oh, okay. That he was saying, I deserve to die. Oh, okay. Okay. 
The defense put forth a theory that Payant was murdered as part of a conspiracy among unknown corrections officers who lured her to the east side corridor area of the institution by the telephone call, murdered her, and then placed her body in the Greenhaven dump truck while it was temporarily abandoned. This theory takes Payant far from her assigned area and means that both Payant's murder and the hiding and disposal of her body occurred in a relatively open areas to which many people had access. This would have required substantial conspiracy, and no proof of this was presented at trial. In the episode of Forensic Files on this case, Donna's sister Judy believed this theory, at least at the time the show was filmed anyway, um, and she is now deceased. All right, so now we're going to get into where are they now? I'll tell you. Smith was found guilty of the murder of Donna Payant because he was a lifetime prisoner on New York law mandated that the only sentence available to him was death. But on July 2nd, 1984, an appeal by Smith called the law's constitutionality into question, and he was successful in commuting his death sentence to another life term. Smith was resentenced to another life prison term and 15 years solitary confinement, which look, I know he did a lot of really bad stuff, but solitary confinement. That's, that's is awful. Yeah. Awful. I mean, I. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to say if somebody deserves that kind of treatment because it's uh, people lose their fucking mind. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. if Smith was already having these mental health issues, I just don't know why the system it's just going to make it worse. Saw it, yeah. yeah. Saw that as a solution. So anyway, prisons yeah. make a lot of people a lot of money. So maybe that's why. Yeah. So he petitioned the court claiming his confinement violated his rights. However, the U.S. Court of Appeals upheld his sentence in 1992. Upon completion of his sentence in 1997, the state determined that he should remain in solitary, considering that he had three rule violations and that he posed a risk to female guards. Smith again appealed the decision, but the sentence was upheld. As of 2007, Smith was still being housed in solitary confinement, 26 years after Payant's murder. He is serving his sentences at a maximum security five points correctional facility in Seneca County, where David Sweat is also being held. Another tie to Danamora. Wait, he was one of the dudes who escaped? Yep. Oh, in the movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 2007 was the last time that I saw the mentioning of him being in solitary confinement. So I don't know if he still is in solitary or not, but that's as of 2007, he was. Hmm. And reforms after Payant's murder in 1981 retooled some safety protocols for prison guards. Due to a shortage of corrections officers, many at that time received abbreviated training to get them on the job more quickly. According to a 1981 report, Donna Payant had only completed a training course of about three weeks, which is nothing. Mm -hmm. After her death, the Department of Corrections returned to more lengthy training. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I just... Uh, uh, don't know what to say. Yeah, about I don't that. know. Yeah. What <laughs> um, Smith continues to claim that he is innocent of Donna Payne's murder. On May 15th, each year, corrections officers at Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Stormville gather to remember Donna Payne. Um, so now we're going to get into what we think made the killer snap as well as our takeaways from the story. So I believe that the head injuries, um, although he did have an, an EEG as an adult, that confirm no residual brain injuries or deficits. But uh, I do think that there's something there. Yeah, don't they say that they can't tell? Um, what's what's the injury that the people in sports always always have? CTE can only be done. Yeah, they can't even it. tell that they have it until after they're, they're dead. Right, right. And you know what? So, I mean... There could yeah. be that. Because have you seen yes. live video footage of people with CTE losing it? No, I haven't. I mean, OJ's one. But uh, uh, there is um, there was a documentary about Junior Seau and he would just go fit, go into the, like these violent rages. Um, There's another oh, wow. football player who was on film. Um, and he was like, there's something wrong with my head. And he like ran through a glass window. Oh my um, God. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody, but he was, um, he was just not all there. Uh, and, uh, so 
I don't know. The, the brain is a very difficult yeah. thing to study. We still don't know everything there is to know about it. I just watched a brain autopsy the other day and uh, it's one of my favorites. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so side note, I I took a biology class in high school and we got to go to the Washington State University Cadaver Lab and we got to hold brains and hold lungs and like pull tissue back on these cadavers and look inside their um, abdominal cavities. It was one of the greatest days of my life. Kids being born, cadaver <laughs> lab. Excellent. Um, so anyway, uh, so what, what, back to the story. So I think uh, the strict discipline um, uh, on the part of his father, I don't think helped. You can't discipline all kids the same way. I don't know if maybe he was parented in the way that was best for him. Uh, I don't know, but I wonder if he was sexually abused or witnessed an inappropriate sexual act at a young age. Given what we found about his early life and the brutality of his crimes, crimes later in life, I wouldn't be surprised. But I didn't see any. I didn't see that um, anywhere. Yeah. And it's always been interesting to me how like violence ties into religion, and one is used to justify or excuse the other. Like in the Bible, yeah. there are so many freaking stories of killing people and war justified by God or even slavery justified by um, religion. Slaveholders use the yeah. word of God to maintain a system of oppression or even discipline or child abuse. Um, and then two yeah. verses come to mind that hold train up a child in the way he should go, blah, blah, blah. When he grows up, he'll come back to the church and then spare the rod and spoil the child. Like people took that literally. Awful. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, he had some religious training at home and in the joint. And I haven't heard an interview of him, but I wonder if he had some religious motivation or justification for these crimes in his head. So that's my thoughts. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. He definitely had some mental health issues. Um, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which can cause delusions. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if he was actually diagnosed with it, but he said he had multiple personality disorder, which these days is called dissociative identity disorder. Um, that's an extremely rare condition. Oh. So while it's possible, it's improbable. And unfortunately, a lot of not, uh, not a lot, but uh, it happens too many times that uh, prisoners claim that they have multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the devil made me do it or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> They're trying to shift blame. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's possible. Um, but improbable. He probably did not. I do believe that he he probably had some schizophrenia and um you know the whole thing with him believing that his brother that died was living inside of him mm -hmm. pretty weird um mm -hmm. and schizophrenia causes delusions so other than that um possibly like you mentioned some trauma in childhood uh, and the head injuries um it seemed to me like he had zero impulse control yeah. and uh that might be from a head injury. Um, he just, he gets out of jail and first thing he does is, uh, you know, attack somebody. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. And, yeah. um, when I saw on the dock, zero impulse control. So I have a little boy who everybody says he has no impulse control, but I, I, I assume young young kids grow out of that kind of thing. He yeah. never grew out of yeah. it. And part, and that might be in part right. because he was incarcerated for such a big part of his life. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he spent almost all of his adulthood in, in prison. Right. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows i'm an american vigilante i have a question for you 
What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? <sighs> Download American Vigilante now. gonna get into how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you <laughs> so what do you got Beth? this segment is not intended to be victim blaming we thought of this segment because i read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer this is not meant to blame the victims it's just learning from other people's mistakes sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we will just offer up generic tips mm-hmm so it looks like you've got a good one, Beth. And shout out to you gals of Trashy Divorces. Love the show. Yeah, I was listening to Trashy Divorces. Uh, still one of my favorite podcasts. I listen every week. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were talking in an episode about gray rocking which is oh. a term I had never heard before. Me either. And it's a method of dealing with narcissists to basically bore them out of your life. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds funny. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, the goal of the gray rock method is to cause a narcissist to lose interest in you when having no contact at all is not a feasible option. For example, if you are divorced, but you have kids together, so you have to talk to them about the kids, or you work in the same office, or you have a family member who's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. You can also use it on people who have other personality disorders like antisocial personality disorder, or borderline personality disorder, or just people who are abusive or drama kings and queens, you know, those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's genius. Yeah. Uh, narcissists like to surround themselves with people who keep them entertained all the time. Uh, so they, they love drama. Mm -hmm. And the gray rock method is a technique where you become emotionally non-responsive and just boring. You minimize conversations and verbal exchanges as much as you can, although you don't want to completely ignore the narcissist because they might see that as a challenge. Uh -huh. Instead, just reply with minimal and short responses is to limit conversation, attempt to provide one-word answers to questions, and just to stick to facts without elaboration or opinion. Conversations should center on monotonous or boring topics. If the narcissist tries to get you to react, uh, because like I said, they love drama, try to utilize nonverbal responses such as nodding and smiling to avoid further engagement. Mm. Uh, they will try to push your buttons and get you to react, but try very hard not to. Don't provide any details regarding your personal life so they can't use any of that information as a weapon to manipulate you because uh, that is something they love to do. Refrain from letting a narcissist know that you are doing well without them. So, you know, uh, it might feel, feel good to let them know that, hey, I'm doing great without you, but they might see that as a challenge. Mm. Don't ask the narcissist questions as it will give them ample opportunity to highlight their accomplishments while being demeaning and disparaging to you in the process. Stay away from discussing the past as old arguments can be resurrected and blame can be reassigned. But if this does occur, accepting the blame and responsibility can be a tactic to further diffuse conversation. Even if this is not true and not the way that you feel, just say, yeah, okay, right, I did uh -huh, it. Yeah, you know, next, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know what's true. You just need to, uh, you know, get rid of them. Right. So the gray rock method can be frustrating for that reason, uh, because you have to suppress your thoughts and opinions. But acting like a rock and being emotionally non-responsive will bore a narcissist and cause them to lose interest. And they are not getting the attention and admiration that they want out of you. So the narcissist will be forced to find it elsewhere. That's a fire ass tip. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I loved yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I heard that on uh, Trashy Divorces. I was like, I have to, I have to look into this some more. I'm glad you shared so, yeah. that. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Okay, so now we're going to get into some serial killer or true crime news. And I don't have a story, but Beth does. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people in our Facebook group have been posting about Khalil Wheeler Weaver, a guy in New Jersey who is currently on trial for strangling three women to death and attempting to murder a fourth. He's a black guy and he allegedly targeted black sex workers. I say allegedly because he's still on trial. Okay. And people are saying that he knew the police would not work the investigations of the murders of black sex workers very hard. Surprise, surprise. And that, yeah, he was right. He was only caught because the family of one of the victims set up a sting for him using social media. One of the most intriguing details, I think, in this case is that one of the victims he was texting with Mm -hmm. texted to him, you're not a serial killer, right? And then she was later found dead. Yeah, then serial killers aren't like the cops. Like they don't have to identify themselves. Yeah, they don't. They won't. <laughs> so that's a, a moot question. <laughs> wow. So at the time of these killings, uh, Wheeler Weaver was working as a security guard at a hotel and at a grocery store. And he wanted to be a police officer. Oh, no, 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 no. So, yeah. This guy is definitely going on our list of subjects if he is found guilty, of course. But it does sound like they have a lot of evidence against him. So I think he will be going on our list. I think so, too. Good call. I'm glad uh, you shared this story because this was mind blowing. Like when I saw it posted, I thought it was a joke. Um that's why. So I yeah, yeah, like an onion article. Yeah, Yeah. but uh, it is. It sounds like it's um, awful. awful. Yeah, Yeah, and very real. Yes. Um. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show, where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. And uh, in the name of Native American Heritage Month, which just ended in November, um, but we uh, were supposed to record this episode then, and uh, now it's December. So this was the one we it. had technical difficulties yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still wanted to shout out a podcast called um, Women of Size Podcast, and it's hosted by uh, Indigenous writer and actor Jana Schmiding, and it's a podcast where. As women of color, they get to talk about their bodies, race, and the impact those things have on the lives of women of color of all sizes and how they are reclaiming their space. Um, It's a great show that has introduced me to women of color, especially indigenous women that I may not have ever known. Um, So they're they're out there. um, And it's uh, really fucked up that we just highlight them in November. Um, But they are making content all year round and deserve to be seen and heard. And this podcast is just another example of that. Awesome. Yeah. What do you got? Um, so I wanted to shout out Captain Hunter's podcast. That's what it's called. Captain mm-hmm. Hunter's podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a podcast dedicated to bridging the gap between police and the communities that they serve. And Captain Hunter is a black police officer. And it's really interesting to hear his perspective and the perspective of the guests that he has on his show. Mm-hmm. According to the description, the show is dedicated to analyzing police procedures and giving a layman's understanding to the public. It also reviews relevant events which are occurring around the U.S. and attempts to give the public the reasons why the police have taken the course of action that they have. And the goal of the podcast is to bring all groups together and to work in harmony to make all communities better and cohesive. And uh, I've listened to a few episodes and I really like it. Um, It's really interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, whew. I never in a million th- years thought I'd be listening and enjoying to hear hear a policeman talk about anything. <laughs> so, and he's um the race thing is not lost on upon him and the whole blue lives blue wave or blue shield um th- that juxtaposition of those two worlds is not lost upon him and he does a really really good job of articulating. Talks a lot about that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you, Beth. Yeah. That was fire. Also, look at you. Uh, so where? <laughs> the people find us our website is fruitloopspod.com our facebook page is fruit loops pod and our discussion group is fruit loops pod discussion on facebook we are also on twitter and instagram at fruit loops pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through 
patron. <laughs> you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. That is correct. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.